Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to talk a little bit about some of those enemies, foreign and domestic, as we often do, but we're going to be talking in this particular block in the next one with a man who has deeply studied the matter and I believe has, well, written and spoken about it as authoritatively as anybody in our country. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, United States Air Force veteran. He has been active in the public arena since he was, well, basically cashiered for writing a tremendously important book entitled Irresistible Revolution, Marxism Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the U.S. Military. He had an opportunity to testify uh, recently before the United States Congress, uh, specifically the House Oversight Committee's Subcommittee on National Security. And I must say he, um, he did handsomely, and we're very pleased to have him have a chance to reprise some of the points that he made there, as well as to embellish upon the larger point, which is that we are facing enemies, foreign and domestic, who are unmaking the United States military. Colonel, it's good to have you with us, sir. Welcome back. It's been a long time, but um, you're, you're welcome as the flowers in May, as they say. Thank you, Frank. Happy to be here with you to talk about this important uh, topic. Thank you. It, it's, it's hard to overstate the importance to my way of thinking, Matt. And again, you understand it so well because you've served both uh, as a fighter pilot and then as a commander in Space Command, uh, working on the space warning business. There are a few things more serious. And yet we as a people don't seem to appreciate that so much. Uh, that without the United States military, you know, we are not only in a world of hurt, but we may not survive it. And I'm anxious to get your thoughts on the nature of this agenda. Uh, you've put very much uh, a spotlight on the Marxism piece of it. Talk about uh, whence this comes and the effects that it's having, as you see it, on our military. I'm glad you've teed it up in this manner because uh, even while I was on active duty, it became my sense as early as 2019, and then especially after George Floyd's death and the riots we saw in this country, which I recognized at once as Marxist revolutionary tactics and impulse, that if someone didn't identify what was happening within the ranks of our military, we might very well lose our military. And <clears throat> of course, I've joked about this publicly. I didn't want to write a book. I think... Um, I say it kind of tongue-in-cheek. No one sane wants to write a book unless that's what they do for, for, for a profession. I very much enjoyed being in command of a, of a U.S. Space Force space-based missile warning unit, but the detrimental and divisive and destructive impacts of both Marxist rhetoric, anti-American, which is, of course, anti-American rhetoric, uh, race-baiting, race-identity politics, oppressor versus oppressed narratives of affairs in this country, which we've long since put behind us, uh, by and large, as a people and as a country. They were resurfacing to the undermining of morale and readiness and lethality, and of course, it's steering people away from the United States military, both those who are presently serving and those who had ambitions for service in the United States military. And so I saw this all coming to a head and just like you teed up this conversation in the first place, I thought there couldn't be anything that I can think of that is more destructive of our uh, military apparatus, our national security apparatus, than diversity and inclusion initiatives, which usually come packaged uh, nicely and are delivered by people who have a smile on their faces, whether they are deliberate, willful uh, propagandists or just useful idiots, as we've, so, as we've heard in the past, but I saw firsthand uh, what it was doing to our troops. It was dividing them. And so I tried to use the apparatus available to me within the military to solve the problems, which proved futile. And so I chose to write the book that you've mentioned, Irresistible Revolution. And I only did it because I sensed that if this is not brought to light quickly, it might very well serve to undo our military and in turn, the United States. Let me ask you about uh, terminology here, Matt. You, you mentioned diversity and inclusion. It's usually diversity, equity, and inclusion, though I 
actually prefer mm -hmm. diversity inclusion equity because the acronym <laughs> seems more apt, D-I-E. But that and critical race theory or CRT and LGBTQ plus uh, the whole uh, sexual uh, identity agenda, uh, transgender mm -hmm. initiatives, uh, even uh, the idea that climate change is the greatest threat we face. All of these have come to be kind of lumped together as the, quote, woke agenda. Uh, one of the things, again, that I appreciate so much about your clarity on this stuff is that it is Marxism, uh, is it not? And and where does this idea of woke come into it? And is that anything other than a means of sort of obscuring what we're really facing? Yeah, in part, it obscures. So colloquially, we, we refer to this, as you've mentioned, as wokeism. It's neo-Marxism. It's cultural Marxism. And what began... Um, in the mid-19th century as um, what we historically call Marxism, which was a class-based uh, kind of rhetoric and warfare, didn't fit the, well. The proletariat versus the exactly. bohemians and all that. Well, the, the, the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie, excuse me. Not yes, and the Bohemians fit in there nicely. They, they were in there too. A little bit. But uh, yeah, the, the, the idea was that you had economic class stratification. It was never, it was never just about capitalism uh, per se. It was about dividing groups of people based on their class uh, or their economic uh, stratification. That didn't work really well in Western civilization because we had a flourishing middle class under the capitalist system. People didn't want to rise up against the bourgeois ruling class. They happily fit within their lane, uh, making an income, pursuing in our country the American dream. And so what was it that the Marxists could seize upon that could successfully divide people sufficient to arouse the hate-filled, uh, visceral, emotional response that would get them fighting one another to topple the regime? There seemed to be nothing better than race and our history of racism and the history of slavery. And we bring all of those things, which are quite emotional, of course, up to the forefront of the human psyche. And then you start to lay blame on certain groups of people that are based on their race, their accidentals. And of course, we didn't stop with race because race itself, it seems, was not sufficient to cause the revolution. So we went to the the, the lesbian and the gay and the, and the bi and the trans and every and the queer agendas because what it did is it allowed uh, relatively minor groups of people all to pursue an angry agenda. Not everyone who fits into those categories ipso facto is aggressive or is hostile to Western civilization, but it allowed those who were hostile, who did want to destroy the country, who did want to tear down Western so society to use those, another term here, intersectionalities for their purposes and to abuse others for their privilege and to extract from them confessions of guilt, whether or not they were ever guilty of anything and to completely shake up the entire culture of Western society. And, and so I this, love this. You've really described cultural Marxism as it, it uh, is practiced by Mao and Marxism. You know, others, yeah. you know, I met with complete just a couple of days ago in Washington, DC, and we were walking up and down the big gold, painted letters uh, that say Black Lives Matter just north of the White House. Uh, I think it was north of the White House. We have signs that said Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, people just call all of this wokeism. But Xi Van Fleet, who lived through Mao's cultural revolution, said, no, 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 make no mistake about it. This is a Marxist revolution. This is a cultural revolution. And one of their best tactics, as you pointed out so well, is that they undermine language they change definitions of terms, they confuse the minds of men, and then they force you to play on their battlefield with their newly defined terms, such as diversity, inclusion, and equity. Which is a rigged game. Uh, Jivan Fleet is a great friend of this program. We've uh, so delighted with the fact that you guys have gotten together. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with much more with Matt Lomar. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. It's not every day that the American people secure a victory over the combined legions of radical environmentalists, moneyed interests of Wall Street, and enemies foreign and domestic in places like the Chinese Communist Party and the Biden administration. But yesterday was one of those rare and much-needed wins. Faced with opposition from an aroused public and a growing number of patriotic public servants, including 23 state treasurers and 25 attorneys general, the New York Stock Exchange withdrew its proposed Securities and Exchange Commission rule allowing so-called natural asset companies. We've thus been spared, at least for the time being, a massive American sell-off and sell-out involving U.S. public and some private lands. We've also seen a formula for working and succeeding at the state level when the federal government is betraying its sworn duty and our vital interests. This is Frank Afney. We're back. Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, United States Air Force veteran, is in the House. I'm very pleased to say he has um, recently testified before the United States Congress about the problems we're discussing here. Uh, what is being done to the only military we have, as Don Rumsfeld would say, especially at a time such as this. And uh, Matt, one of the things that has worried me so much, and I just make a kind of brief on this, is that this kind of agenda, the dividing and conquering, the turning people against one another that is, well, central to sort of Marxist takedowns, whether it's of governments or societies or families for that matter, is that when you turn people against one another, it's harder for them to make common cause against notably other threats, external enemies in particular. And it's it's hard to overstate in my estimation, and I've not served in uniform. I've been in the civilian side of the Pentagon a long time ago, of course, but you you have been in uniform. Talk a bit about what the corrosive effect on things like unit cohesion and good order and discipline and, you know, the sort of camaraderie that is required in our armed forces for them to be successful if this agenda is sort of force-fed to them. Well, we could talk about this for an entire show, this question you tee up here. So let me say a few thoughts about it. You know, we've all heard it said before that it's probably a good idea not to talk about politics and religion at the dinner table. And um, the reason that perhaps uh, that is true is because people feel so passionately about ideas and specifically those ideas. The last thing you want to introduce into a military unit that thrives and becomes lethal and ready and has good morale based on its unity are those ideas which so overtly divide people. Now, when Overtly and by design. Yeah, Overtly and by design. I said it in the congressional hearing. I've said it in my book and I've said it elsewhere. Critical race theory was created by those and critical theory, which is the parent of critical race theory or the grandparent, <clears throat> was designed by people who were adamant about the undermining and destruction of Western civilization. They were overt critics of the West. They were critics of the United States. Many of them were Marxist. We've got their literature. It's not a surprise. James Lindsay, by the way, has done an excellent job writing about all of this for the past number of years. A and yet there's a denial by our senior military leaders. There's a denial, predominantly it was by Democrats in Congress, uh, that there's anything Marxist or revolutionary about any of it. They think that it's somehow our strength. You hear this hashtag all the time. Diversity is our strength. And I let them know in Congress. They said, I reject the notion that diversity is our strength. And I want to I want to be careful what I say with terms here because we're always using this term diversity. There is a naturally occurring diversity in a country that honors free speech, like the United States, in the ranks of our military because we assimilate people in from various backgrounds and walks of life with different mindsets into uniform, 
And what we try and do when they show up is we disabuse them of their backgrounds in, in one sense by giving them the same haircut, putting on the same uniform and telling them they all bleed the same color and that their politics and their religion, they're welcome to them. But in the military workplace, you've got a particular mission to do, and it's defending the Constitution against its enemies, foreign and domestic, and specifically getting trained to do some particular mission that you are going to be an expert in. Leave all the baggage at the door. And what happens when, again, Democrats, uh, and, and I love being able to, you know, I've been trained my whole life to not think this way and talk this way because that's what the military man does. They're introducing, and especially this regime under the Biden administration, Lloyd Austin, introducing race identity politics into the military workplace. It's not just unique to the military, but it's, it's prevalent there. That teaches people to look across the aisle at their fellow soldier and say, I know we wear the same uniform. I know we have the same haircut. I know that we all keep the same standards, roughly speaking, but your political worldview is unacceptable. Your race is unacceptable. Your accidentals are a problem and your implicit and unconscious biases, even if you don't feel them, I know you've got them. And so I'm going to punish you and judge you for those things, which you can't even yourself identify because I've been trained to know that they're there. Think how toxic that is. It's unchristian, it's un-American, and it's terribly destructive. Amen. And and at least I may be promoted because I hold those views of you, mm. not because of the merit of my performance, especially in combat. Um, Matt, I, again, this is this is so important. And again, I have to say, most of us in the civilian world have no idea that this is a foot, let alone that it could be so toxic. And you know what I'm really struck by, speaking of civilians, is it appears that at least the civilian leadership of the Pentagon, you mentioned hmm. Lloyd Austin, who is these days a civilian, I guess, uh, with a military background, of course. But the service secretaries, I think in particular, have been tasked with trying to figure out why is it that we're having the recruiting problems that we are, or, or, or even for that matter, the retention problems that we are. And they seem absolutely determined to ignore that it may have anything to do with the kind of environment you've just right. described that they're creating with these policies. Uh, is there any doubt in your mind that that's having an impact, in fact, on recruitment and retention, as well as good order and discipline of those still serving? Well, I wish I had the statistics in front of me from some recent polling that was done of our active duty service members. I did have it in front of me sitting in, in Congress, and I, I don't have it in front of me. But if you listen to the if you listen to the voices of those who serve who have become disenfranchised, they are overwhelmingly concerned with the overt politicization of the military workplace, whether or not they know what to call it. They specifically mention diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. They specifically mention uh, the Defense Department's critical policy memorandum that Lloyd Austin put out of the of the overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, and 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 taxpayer funded travel to go to uh, for those that wish to to receive an elective surgery for an abortion to travel to other states in the country. They specifically mention uh, pandering to a tran a radical transgender agenda and transgender sensitivity trainings. They specifically mention the discussion of race in the workplace. It's all of the things you're teeing up on this show is what the men and women in uniform are concerned about. But Democrats in the House the other day wanted to tell me that's not what they're concerned about at all. In fact, they say they're aware that our troops are more concerned about sanitation and, and their housing and... Um, and they mentioned a few other things. And, climate change. And, I, I and assume climate change. high on their list. And you yeah. know what? There are always people that will have concern over those issues. And I, I don't want to disparage those who have, who wear the uniform who have zeroed in on those issues. But overwhelmingly and historically, those who serve in the United States military come from veteran families. Their, their fathers and their grandfathers served. And all of those veterans right now are so disgusted with the direction of the military, they're not even recommending to their their grandchildren and their nieces and nephews that they should serve. Right. And, and so, and it's, ha and it's having appealing to. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Go there. Yeah. Who is it that we're appealing to exactly? Who is it that we're hoping to attract into the military? And I'll tell you with the COVID shot mandates uh, of the past couple of years, even though they're no longer in place, we pushed out many thousands of very decent, predominantly Christian, not all predominantly conservative, not all people who chose of their own conscience to not get the COVID shot. They were outed as radicals. 
their religious accommodation requests were denied, and those who chose to, to submit to the pressure of the Defense Department to get vaccinated, if you can even call it such a thing, and I, I don't think you can anymore, uh, those who chose to submit under pressure against their conscience have, in many cases, suffered injury, and unfortunately, some have uh, suffered death, and their families are now left with that legacy. I mean, we've, we've done a terrible injustice to the men and women in uniform. I hear about it all the time, and you can't fix this stuff overnight, which is another part of the problem. We can't. And the worst of it is, as far as I'm concerned, the kind of people that we have purged in one way or another, for one reason or another, including your good self, are among the people that we most want in That's uniform. Right. And it's uh, it's a great, great sadness, as well as possibly a great, great danger that you're not there any longer. Matt Lohmeyer, come back with more, please. We've got so much more to talk about, and you are a personal hero of mine. Thank you for joining us today. We look Thanks forward for to your new documentary coming up in the near future, as well as uh, the chance to talk with you further about irresistible revolution. God bless. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Night after night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and it's a pleasure always to be able to say George Raceley's in the house, our duty genius, and boy, do we need one right now. He's a Mensa Society member, so don't take my word for it. He is the editor-in-chief of a wonderful online publication, Conservative HQ, product of uh, the great Richard Vigory organization. He has an abundance of expertise in the political arena, having served on some 300 campaigns from presidential races still dog catcher i imagine but he certainly knows his way around the business and who better to talk to about it uh the donald trump victory in iowa among other things than our friend george racy george welcome back good to have you with us sir well thank you very much frank great to be here uh, what do you make of that election in well iowa? uh much better to be in florida than in iowa this time of year but um i think trump's victory in uh, 98 of the 99 counties uh, in Iowa is historic. In fact, uh, the one county that he lost, he lost by exactly one vote, which is Johnson County. He lost that to uh, Nikki Haley and Johnson County is the home of the University of Iowa, which tells you a lot about who's supporting Haley. but anyway, uh, I think it is historic, and I think it sends a, a large message to Washington about where the uh, Republican and conservative electorate is at right now. So, well, it does, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if that holds up mm-hmm. um, in other states. Uh, New Hampshire, I think, is uh, Nikki's big hope. Uh, yes. She's not likely even to carry her own uh, state of South Carolina, as I understand it. Uh, that, given, that's true. That's big time Trump territory. But mm-hmm. um, New Hampshire is uh, a wild card, I guess, for the more moderate uh, 
Republicans. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, uh, she has the support of Governor Sununu, whose family has a long uh, history in Republican politics in the state and a very deep organization, which they have typically thrown to establish Republicans like uh, the Bushes and now Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. We'll be watching it closely with your good help, yeah. my friend. I wanted to pivot to something that you have thrown yourself into, um, I'm very pleased to say, and that is this whole issue of um, natural asset companies. Um, and I, I want to yeah. just say a quick word about uh, the work we've been doing at the Center for Security Policy with our friends in the Sovereignty Coalition to yeah. illuminate this issue. And uh, you've been among those, George, who's really dug down into it and uh, can help us understand how serious a problem it is. Uh, Give us a quick assessment. Um, I noticed you had a piece on your website about uh, uh, the last farm in the USA, and that seems a perfect way to introduce this topic. Yeah, well, it's uh, these national asset companies are a tremendous and insidious threat to uh, the economic and national security future of the United States. Uh, The intention is to essentially withdraw natural resources permanently from development. And uh, while farmland is a a big focus because uh, of the impact that they potentially could have on family farms that have granted conservation easements, um, my concern spreads way beyond that, for example, One of the largest and uh, richest uh, lithium deposits in the United States has been discovered on the uh, Utah-Wyoming border. Uh, It is on Bureau of Land Management land. Uh, It competes directly with the Chinese monopoly on uh, um, lithium. And uh, a future uh, far-left administration could sell the natural uh, asset, uh, natural assets of that tract to uh, one of these natural asset companies and take it out of production permanently. And uh, And those could be owned by the Chinese Communist Party, as I understand. Well, it's very interesting that you bring up the Chinese Communist Party because uh, Chinese communists actually have a piece of the company that's intending to develop this track and mine it. Yeah, and so uh, for if if they achieve their goals of uh, getting the the mining rights there, what's to prevent them from selling it to one of these natural asset companies and effectively maintaining their monopoly? So, uh, towards that, just a dangerous. small tweak here. I, as I understand it, it's not so much that these assets would be sold outright, but the control of them. Well, the yes, management that, decisions, effectively the same thing, but it's, yeah, it's important for, to, for to keep that in that, mind. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and the right. trouble is, as I understand it, that there's a real prospect that while these entities might decide that, um, you know, there's going to be no mining, there's going to be no mm-hmm. timber, no farming, what have you, no hunting, not yeah. least, because that's mm-hmm. not sustainable, you see. They nonetheless could very well put some of their favored projects like wind farms and solar farms and maybe even battery manufacturing facilities on what's supposed to be pristine grounds. I mean, it just, uh, the whole thing stinks to high heavens, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there is also uh, the opportunity to, to use these for corrupt purposes, as we've seen with a lot of other of these green uh, New Deal type of things, the the rights that would be acquired typically are granted to left-wing donors and activists. Uh, and so uh, it's a rich source of corruption for the left. Well, the whole thing, I mean, they're, they're essentially basing it on a <laughs> an accounting scheme that allows you to impute value to things like the air. So it's, it's yeah. a kind of alchemy. I mean, that the possibilities for fraud are really unlimited and shame on the New York stock exchange, George, for not only it's complicity in trying to engineer this thing, but it's efforts to profit from it as well as a partner with the, <laughs> uh, the so-called intrinsic exchange group that is, 
manufacturing of this yeah. accounting system. I mean, it, the whole thing reeks. So the reason that we want you to be aware of all this, folks, is there's now another day. Um, the 18th is the last day that the Securities and Exchange Commission is uh, taking comments, as they call it. There's another two weeks where there's supposed to be some rebuttals and so on. But basically, we're down to the wire now. And we urge you, if you have not already done so, just take a minute, literally a minute, to go to SovereigntyCoalition.org. And you can, with a click of a mouse, send your comment to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Tell them you don't want any part of this. And you can also send a comment, by the way, to your elected representatives in the House and Senate and to the New York Stock Exchange. They all need to hear what you think about this and they need to hear it now. So please don't uh, don't put it aside because uh, this is the end of the comment period. George, I wanted to turn to one other thing quickly with you. Mm -hmm. You've written very powerfully about the prospect that Marxists in the House of Representatives Democratic Caucus, and I think that's probably pretty much all of them, are working hard to engineer uh, the recovery by the Democrats of the majority in the House. And uh, you paint a pretty bleak picture of uh, how the Republicans are responding to this threat and, and what it might mean for the country. Uh, give us just the short form on this, if you could, please. Well, uh, you know, the, the Democrats in the House, being good Marxists, uh, know the history of revolutions, and they know that chaos uh, is the friend of changing government. And so, you know, ever since the uh, ouster of Kevin McCarthy, which they helped engineer, uh, they have uh, essentially been generating a whole series of chaotic votes. The Republicans, uh, to their shame, quite frankly, have been unable to unite behind any kind of an agenda. Uh, they don't know what they stand for. And the Democrats have uh, ironclad party discipline. They never lose a, a member in a vote. They never compromise with Republicans to advance the Republican agenda, even in the smallest little detail. And so this chaos uh, has uh, created the environment in which the Democrats can and probably will run on uh, the slogan of end the chaos, vote Democrat. And it's a typical example of how Marxist Democrats operate, which is to be both the arsonist and the fireman is you create chaos and then you claim to be the answer that will, the solution to it. Classic Marxism. Uh, George, when you say that the Democrats have been engineering votes that contribute to this chaos, I, I assume you mean Senate Democrats are doing that because in the House, yeah. the, the minority doesn't have much of a say about what votes come to the floor, right? Exactly. Uh, the, uh, the Senate Democrats, uh, Charles Schumer uh, being their leader, um, you know, have thrown a series of, particularly on spending in the budget, uh, completely unacceptable so-called compromises uh, at the House Republican majority. Uh, and they've been aided and abetted, quite frankly, by Mitch McConnell and a handful of Republicans in the Senate. Uh, and so consequently, we are where we are with these continuing resolutions and uh, spending hawks in the House in particular getting more and more frustrated. Yeah, and uh, Speaker Johnson has not acquitted himself particularly well in all of this, I think it's fair to say. Just a quick, I need 30 seconds sure. or less on James Lankford and his role in the immigration uh, deal that is supposed to be going to break well, through Ukraine and other issues. You know, Lankford is the, the typical surrender caucus uh, establishment Republican, uh, talked a good game in the primary, uh, you know, former youth pastor, looks perfect, but is so soft on immigration and the crime and national security threats that go with it that he's going to uh, destroy the party. A grim prognosis. George, we'll be covering this closely with your good help. Thank you for your time today. Come back to us again soon. Stay tuned for a fascinating story about a CIA operative who's being punished for trying to protect his colleagues.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. It's not every day that the American people secure a victory over the combined legions of radical environmentalists, moneyed interests of Wall Street, and enemies foreign and domestic in places like the Chinese Communist Party and the Biden administration. But yesterday was one of those rare and much-needed wins. Faced with opposition from an aroused public and a growing number of patriotic public servants, including 23 state treasurers and 25 attorneys general, the New York Stock Exchange withdrew its proposed Securities and Exchange Commission rule allowing so-called natural asset companies. We've thus been spared, at least for the time being, a massive American sell-off and sell-out involving U.S. public and some private lands. We've also seen a formula for working and succeeding at the state level when the federal government is betraying its sworn duty and our vital interests. This is Frank Afney. Welcome back. We are visiting in these next two blocks, I'm pleased to say, with a good friend and very valued colleague. His name is Colonel Rob Manis, United States Air Force retired. He has served in senior positions in the Air Force before his retirement. These days, he is the host of the Rob Manis Show, which he holds forth handsomely on the national security issues and other challenges of our day. We're always delighted to have a chance to catch up with him, um, especially on matters of mutual interest and concern. And one of those is um, this question of whether or not we should have public lands of the United States and even private property in some cases turned over to so-called natural asset companies and we've just had a major development in that story, uh, and it's great to have a chance to catch up with Rob about it because he's been very involved with our sovereignty coalition and trying to hold the line against this harebrained idea. <laughs> Rob, it's good to have you with us, sir. Welcome, and uh, Happy New Year, such as it is, and I'm anxious to get your thoughts on this NAC issue, as it's called. It's good to be back with you, Frank. Thanks for having me on, and Happy New Year to everybody on your team and everything. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, it, it's a big a big win, you know, uh, against this NAC natural asset companies effort. Uh, you know, uh, with the reporting that we're seeing in the last few hours, uh, New York Stock Exchange withdrawing the proposal uh, and everything. But you know, I you know I I got an update this morning, and the uh, Washington Examiner's got a great article in it. Uh, uh, and the title is exactly right. The SEC has got to put a stake in this thing, you know, because uh, uh, this proposal is more than just business. It's a, uh, I think it's actually the replacement for ESG, the environmental social governance uh, uh, scoring system that companies like BlackRock have been using to, to delist other companies from their uh, their funds and those kinds of things. Uh, and uh, as we know, we've heard Fink, uh, Larry Fink of BlackRock say uh, publicly a couple of times that ESG is uh, is really a losing uh, proposition because people hate it so much. We've identified it in, in essence, uh, the American people have. Uh, and then the other thing is uh, uh, for the sake of our sovereignty itself, you mentioned the sovereignty coalition uh, that I'm proud to be part of uh, on the team. And uh, you know, if China can come in uh, and set up these uh, these companies and buy our not just public land, but private land and even block off the use of the air over those lands for uh, for the improvement of mankind and humankind. Well, that's a disaster uh, in the making. Uh, so so it's a great win. Uh, but we got to keep the pressure up. Yeah, we got to get the stake in the heart. That's absolutely right. And and I, I so appreciate you making the connection to ESG, uh, Rob, because uh, that thing has been a flop. Uh, not not that Larry Fink and company haven't used it as a mm -hmm. blunt instrument to try to, well, affect what they call uh, the transformation from shareholder capitalism to so-called stakeholder capitalism 
mm-hmm. and get you know people like uh, three radical environmentalist activists on the board of Exxon Mobil, for example, right, which is translated into you know some rather significant impact on their business model. Mm-hmm. But this whole gambit, which essentially would enrich people for weaponizing this kind of instrument, the NAC, the natural asset company, to uh, lock down our natural resources uh, is a really terrifying proposition. And I I must say, I'm both delighted, as I know you are, but also kind of astonished that at the end of the day, and I think it's a function in part of our, our efforts, our sovereignty coalition and the great team, including 23 treasurers across the country and Mm -hmm. 25 attorneys general who rolled in on this thing and basically, I guess, uh, persuaded the New York Stock Exchange that uh, this was going to be a real problem for them, a reputational problem. Uh, So we've got a stay of execution, Rob, but like you, I think we may not have a a commutation of sentence just yet, but we need to be alive to this and and help to be resisting it. So... um, I, I did want to just say, I, I'm told that one attorney general might have had a particularly important, albeit behind the scenes role in all of this, uh, uh, the Georgia attorney general by the name of Chris Carr. Uh, and I understand that he might have had a word with uh, the New York Stock Exchange that um, was very shortly thereafter followed by the decision to uh, get out of this line of work for the moment. But uh, we'll be following that story as well. And let me just ask you if I could... Uh, more broadly, what I know you have been very engaged on and helpful with is this uh, broader idea that through these uh, gambits, these international Chinese Communist Party associated more often than not, uh, machinations like, in this case, the you know national assets of uh, of our country, but also the World Health Organization, Rob, um, is being weaponized as another instrument for taking down our sovereignty, is it not? And what are, uh, concerns should we have about that? And, and more to the point, what should we be trying to do about it? Well, we should be very concerned about that. And I know that uh, the teams that I'm on, uh, that uh, that our organization uh, sponsors and supports and everything has been uh, doing everything from getting it in front of congressional committees, briefing senators, uh, uh, and those kind of things. And we need to continue to do that. Uh, and uh, through uh, our systems uh, that we've used uh, to uh, get the word to the American people and, and, and Give them tools uh, to get the word, their word, to Congress and uh, elect other elected officials. Uh, we need to continue to do that. Uh, but the World Health Organization is part of uh, uh, this this uh, globalist effort to change things for the worst, not for the better of humankind, but for the worst. It's part and parcel of this plan that we're talking about here with the natural asset companies. That's not just a Biden administration plan. That's a globalism plan uh, that's been going on in in, uh, many countries around the world to uh, reduce uh, emissions, what, by 30% uh, by by 2030. uh, Take the the land out of uh, productive use. By 2050, which is not doable, uh, quite frankly. And uh, and the WHO not, is- Not without a lot of privation, at least, but hold that thought because we want to come back to it on the other side of a short break. Rob Manis is in the House, Colonel, United States Air Force, retired, a man of great distinction and ability. We appreciate always his visits. We're going to continue with this one on the other side of the break. Stay tuned, please. Welcome back. Rob Manis is in the house, a friend and colleague, uh, the host of a terrific program of his own. He calls it the Rob Manis Show. Of course, why not? Here he's talking with us about some work we've been collaborating on, and I think vital work at that. And I want to thank all of you in this audience who have been engaging on this uh, natural asset uh, company exercise. You made a difference, and we need your help uh, in this World Health Organization exercise as well. And Rob, um, you were just making the point that the the larger agenda is not making things better here. Um, 
the argument is it will be better for nature, but it's going to be really awful for an awful lot of human beings. And, and we're seeing that happen now in the Netherlands and Sri Lanka and places like that. Talk a little bit about what the scheme basically is in terms of, uh, oh, I don't know, the size of our population and, uh, and energy security and the like. Well, it's, it's all about control and the control being used to diminish uh, or depopulate the world down to a smaller size of population because they, they literally, Frank, want us to return to uh, the smoking open fire uh, outside of a, uh, of a hut uh, that, and not farm the ground uh, in the way that we can do in the 21st century to, to feed the entire world quite frankly, uh, even here, just here in America. And all you have to do is look at what the farmers in uh, Germany and the Netherlands uh, uh, and Poland are now doing uh, with, uh, with these massive protests we've seen the last few weeks. Uh, uh, and the reason it's the farmers is because the, the places like the World Health Organization, the UN, uh, the European Union, the United States even, are, are pushing on the farmers to stop using things like fertilizers that work, that are safe, uh, and reducing their ability to raise families of their own, make their own income, and do the thing that they have chosen to do in their profession, and that is feed others. Uh, and uh, it's a devastating uh, set of rules that the organizations like the WHO are trying to implement, and it removes the sovereignty of individual nations. And I think that's the in-state goal of all these globalist organizations, the World Economic Forum, the WHO, all the UN, all of them is to eliminate national sovereignty so that they can implement these widespread, broad rules that hurt humankind. Right. That's and the they're very explicit about it. They, they call it global governance. And yeah. guess who, folks, is likely to be the principal governor under such an arrangement. It's going to be the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, my money's on them. <laughs> I don't know about you, Ross, but uh, not so much the Davos guys who are meeting as we speak and mm -hmm. scheming to bring all this about. I think the Davos uh, guys are the useful idiots for the Communist Party of China. That's time. what I think. And I, I think you're right. I think and it, enablers. Uh, whoever's in charge of that will be there. And enablers. Yeah. Um, let me turn to another topic with you uh, that is uh, very much on my mind. Um, Iran, uh, Rod, you, you've spent a long time thinking about, and I believe in the course of your career, contending with the Iranians and their proxies. Uh, we are now witnessing what I can only describe as a spectacle, an appalling spectacle mm -hmm. at that. But the Biden administration is one of its first acts in office, removed from the designated terrorist list, the Houthis one of the Iranian proxies operating out of Yemen. Uh, they're now at our throats. I mean, literally, with uh, tax on shipping, closing off the Red Sea and, and all the rest. Uh, the administration has now very belatedly decided, oh, no, no, we're, we're going to redesignate them and throw them back on that list. What does this tell us about the quality of American, well, statecraft, shall we say, uh, and, and military strategy? Uh, and where are we likely to find ourselves if um, the kind of response that we've seen so far, I mean, apart from this designation, a couple of strikes here and there and the like, is is all that there is in terms of dealing with these guys? And their well, number, number one, Frank, it reminds all of us that weakness uh, generates aggression uh, when that potential adversaries in the world in the United States uh, is still the world's sole superpower, which were being overtaken uh, very quickly by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP and the PRC. Uh, but uh, but we still are that. So we have a lot of potential adversaries. Uh, and as, as soon as this current president made that move, that put uh, the sign of weakness out there immediately that this administration was going to be a pushover because they're trying to be idealist and, and offer a, a token uh, uh, feather, uh, you know, to, to of peace to people like the Houthis, which you cannot negotiate with these people. They're fanatics like the Nazis in Nazi Germany uh, were fanatics. There's no negotiation. And, and I think 
the fractures in our deterrent shield that the United States and the Western allies have built for 75, 80 years now uh, are wide open. I mean, it started with the Russia invasion uh, uh, to really be seen by the public. But now, uh, beyond... Well, I would argue it started with Afghanistan before that. And Afghanistan before that. Uh, but now with the Iranians, uh, and it's the Iranians that are attacking our forces all over the Middle East and taking advantage of the Hamas-Israel war, uh, and now the Houthis uh, diving into commercial transportation in the shipping lanes and attacking civilian ships, uh, that's, those with are all Iranian weapons, weakness. right? They're all signs of our weakness, and it puts us in a precarious position, Frank, and I'm very concerned about this. And I know uh, that our friend Colonel John Mills has been reporting from Taiwan that they haven't seen any movement that you would see with the Chinese prepping for an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, but uh, President Xi is a very smart man, as a guy named Donald Trump uh, said one time. And uh, he's got to be thinking from a strategic perspective. I'm very concerned. We're, we are really precariously at the precipice of World War III and a new front in the Pacific being open at a time when, although our military budget's really high uh, and our our technology is still really good. Uh, we've weakened ourselves internally, uh, both in the military and the U.S. government. Yeah, Rob, your warning on this is so timely. Uh, we're, in fact, as we speak, about to do a webinar on the very subject that you're describing. And I couldn't agree with you more, especially when the president said, hey, we don't support Taiwan's independence. How is that likely being read in Beijing? We're going to come back to you with an answer to that question and much more, I hope, in the near future. Thank you. Uh, so much, uh, Rob Menace. You are one of our go-to guys on so many of these topics, and we appreciate your help and look forward to visiting with you often in 2024. We look forward to also uh, the engagement of this audience. It's vital uh, in the future work of our Sovereignty Coalition. I hope you'll take a look at uh, our page about this World Health Organization. Your action item for today is to do that homework assignment, sovereigntycoalition.org. We'll be right back. No, we won't be right back. Thanks for joining us for today. Come back next time. Until then, go forth and multiply.